military history in California, and in a southern by location. <coughs> Having been chief historian of the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Battlefield Park since 1972, and a large part of them is author. He's written nine books, including Carpet's Virginia Battery, 1975, Lee's Curls, a biographical register of the field officers of the Army of Northern Virginia, 1979, and a history of the 9th Virginia Cavalry, 1982. He also has two more books in preparation, a history of the 13th Virginia Infantry, and strangely enough, the Battle of Cedar Mountain. And I'm sure some of the questions that are asked tonight might make some changes in that book as you go along. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Robert Crick. It's a pleasure to be back with you again. The Chicago Roundtable, I'm assured by the people that I meet and who I stay with, is the head of the line in the roundtable business in the country. And immodest though they are in saying that, I'm inclined to agree with them, uh, at least to a certain extent. You folks have been at it the longest. You do your tours so wonderfully well, and it's a real pleasure to meet all of those, those of you who are my old friends, and some new ones as well every time I deal with Chicago. Our subject this evening, as you very well know by now, is the Battle of Cedar Mountain. In the August of 1862, Stonewall Jackson was very nearly, if not the, most famous man in the world. He had come in a period of just about a year, a little more than a year, from absolute obscurity, to the point where his name was known on both sides of both oceans and all across the country. He was the man who in the north, the nannies would quiet restive children by saying, watch out or Stonewall will get you. And in the south, I suspect, the same nannies in the same circumstances would say, uh, you better settle down. What would Stonewall Jackson think? He was on everyone's lips. He was a famous man. And though a good case could be made for Jackson having the high points of his career ahead of him even yet in August of 1862 with nine months to live. Even though you could make a case for that, the Battle of Cedar Mountain that we're going to discuss together this evening was his last completely independent operation. Because although he exerted a great deal of independent action on battlefields and during campaigns, he was under Lee's orders for the rest of his life. And here, after he had made his name in the valley at the battlefield of Cedar Mountain, Cedar Run, Slaughter's Mountain, call it what you will, he was entirely on his own, beyond anything but the most remote telegraphic reach from Lee, and he was alone. This man, the most famous man, or nearly so, anywhere on earth in 1862, was a strange, wonderful fellow. You know a lot about Jackson. I'm not going to tell you about his eccentricities. You all know them. Colonel Krolik here gave me as a token just before I stood up the uh, lemon out of his iced tea as a gesture. <laughs> you know how Jackson liked to suck lemons, uh, one of his eccentricities. But I want to read you a couple of accounts. They're not in a terribly obscure place. Many of you will have heard them. A couple of accounts about his behavior from the period just a couple of weeks before Cedar Mountain, during the campaign leading up to the action, to set the stage for you. The first comes from a young Confederate cavalry officer who'd been scouting around my town, Fredericksburg, Virginia. He'd done a good job. He'd sent some of his men dressed up as farmers to carry produce into the town. They'd come back, they'd said something about federal movements at Fredericksburg. This was a time when Fredericksburg was kind of in, in an uneasy between the lines state. The boy had done well. And in his letter home to his wife, boasting, oh, well, he started out to boast at least about his interview with Jackson. 
He says, Colonel Pendleton told me that the general was well pleased and wanted to see me at his tent at once. So the proud young officer who had done good and was going to get a slap on the back for it from the famous T.J. Jackson went in. He says, I found the general in a tent with nothing but a roll of blankets strapped up and two camp stools and a table. He was seated on one stool and motioned me to the other, asking at once for me to tell what I had seen. After I had been talking a few minutes, I perceived he was fast asleep. I stopped and waited several minutes. He woke up and said, proceed. I did so for a few minutes when I noted he was asleep again, so I stopped. He slept longer this time, and when he awoke, he said without any explanation, apology, or further questioning, you may proceed to your quarters. I did so. This same general, just a few days later, a little more than a week before Cedar Mountain, went out riding with his staff, and one of the people along in that entourage of horsemen with the famous general records that this happened in the middle of the afternoon. We were investigating some roads which I expect he intends to use, the contemporary account says. We had not ridden more than five miles, and it was not more than two o'clock in the afternoon when the general suddenly stopped, dismounted at the foot of a tree, unbuckled his sword, and stood it by the tree then lay down with his head on the root of the tree and was asleep in a second, or appeared to be so. I was amazed and glanced at the other gentlemen, who I thought were not so much surprised. The general had not said a word as he went to rest, and we were equally quiet while he slept. Imagine this, if you will, these uh, well-brought-up young men who were on Jackson's staff, sitting on their horses, either looking at the general or in, in embarrassment, not looking at the general while he lay there, unconscious on the ground, in the Virginia countryside, and they sat quietly on their horses. He concludes, he lay with his eyes shut for five or six minutes, got up, buckled on his sword, mounted and rode on without any explanation or comment. He finishes this account with the very words I used a moment ago. He is a curious, wonderful man, using wonderful in the traditional 19th century sense of inspiring wonder rather than the way we use it now. Jackson, however, sleepy though he was from time to time in the presence of his officers, was very rarely caught napping by Federals. But in the meeting engagement at Cedar Mountain, which followed uh, nine days after that last episode, he was very nearly beaten by a much inferior force, commanded by Nathaniel Banks, uh, representing John Pope. There were problems with the way the war was turning just now. You know about John Pope and his orders about depredations against civilians. By 1864, when David Hunter, uh, Philip Sheridan, and others had made an art of pillage, looting, and burning, David Hunter would have looked like some, uh, I'm sorry, uh, John Pope would have looked like someone's patron saint. But when in 1862 he started getting serious about the impact of war on civilians, he was widely reviled. Lee, himself usually very poised, said to Jackson in writing, I want you to suppress General Pope. Those were his words. Well, this started out with some cavalry work. On August the 2nd of 1862, in the little village of Orange Courthouse, there was quite a cavalry clash that went on between Confederate forces under W.E. Jones, that wonderful fellow with the nickname of Grumble, based on his personality, as you might have guessed. William E. Jones and some Confederates got caught by too many Federals and were pretty well beaten back through the town. A member of the 7th Virginia Cavalry, this had been Turner Ashby's when that fellow was alive, his initial unit records how south of town there on the high hill, which is where the road from Fredericksburg comes in today, there was the Willis House. It's still there. And the lady of the house, Miss Willis, came out to try to inspirit those Southerners who had been driven back. This wasn't the way she was expecting it to go. 
She was, to quote this fellow, whose name was Humphreys, pretty and noble-looking. She was urging the men on. She said, oh, I wish I was a man. One fellow, quote, who had been down in the fire said, yes, miss, and if you was, you would wish you was a gal again mighty soon. In the process of losing the cavalry fight on August the 2nd at Orange Courthouse, the grandson of John Marshall, the first Chief Justice of the United States, who was a Confederate field officer, was almost killed and was carried away captive by the Federals. He later died in 1864. Jackson had cavalry problems in general at this time. And there's an account which only exists in manuscript, it's never been printed yet to my knowledge, which throws some light on this. This is something for you to bear in mind in looking at the early phases of the Second Manassas Campaign, and that is that Jackson's cavalry is under the control of Beverly H. Robertson, an old regular army officer who did not adapt to leading volunteers, mounted volunteers, at all well. Just as the Cedar Mountain fighting was ending, Jeb Stewart showed up on the battlefield. I won't be, have enough time tonight to go into enough detail to tell you what he did when he got there, but let me mention that he did show up People wonder how he came to show up just then, and it's been dismissed as a coincidence in some cases, but a contemporary account by a member of Jackson's staff, which is in manuscript at the Library of Congress, explains how unhappy Jackson was on the eve of Cedar Mountain, just going in with his cavalry. It goes like this. Jackson and his doctor, Hunter Holmes McGuire, were having a little joke between them. You know very well that Jackson was not much of a jokester, by any means, but they were having a little joke together because it was bitterly, terribly hot. I'm going to tell you about the temperature several times this evening, how terrible it was, and the dust. But it was hot, and Hunter McGuire, who was thirsty and hot, had eaten a raw onion for the, for the juice in it, and Jackson was teasing him about how antisocial behavior this was. He was teasing McGuire a little bit, and as he was teasing him about having eaten that raw onion, and others of the staff were watching, into this little panoply rode Beverly H. Robertson. Jackson saw him, turned to him, still with a slight smile on his face from the byplay, and he said, as he always said to his cavalry officers, where is the enemy, sir? And Robertson responded, well, I don't know. And the onlookers noted that Jackson's face with the slight pleasant smile looked as though a thundercloud had come across it. And he turned and walked out of the scene and went straight to the telegraph office and telegraphed to Lee that he had to have Stuart to come straighten out his cavalry immediately. So as Jackson heads toward the Battle of Cedar Mountain, coming from the southwest, uh, coming across the Rapidan River, which is well off your map, but coming out of the lower left corner of your map toward the battlefield, he doesn't have cavalry that's going to tell him exactly what he wants. Now on the seventh day of August, two days before the battle, this meeting engagement there on the rolling fields five miles from Culpeper took place on the 9th of August. On the 7th of August, Jackson not only was some miles to the southwest, he had the Rapidan River between him and where the battle was going to be fought. He had not much intention of fighting that battle. And furthermore, he was just starting on the 7th of August, a famous court-martial. Jackson was always quarreling with his subordinates. You know something about some of those quarrels. I guess the most famous one of them all is the one between him and Richard Garnett over the Battle of Kernstown. And all the charges and countercharges came to a head finally in a court-martial that began on August the 7th in the village of Orange Courthouse. The transcript of that court-martial survives. It's in Richmond, Virginia, in one of the repositories there. It's Dick Garnett's own copy. 
and it recounts the cross-examination that Garnett gave to his former supervisor who had fired him from the command of the Stonewall Brigade. And interestingly enough, many of you are interested in Jackson or students of his character. All down the margin of that original court-martial record, which interestingly enough is on blue Yankee paper with the eagle watermark in it, all down that left margin, Garnet has made his notes and he's written lie beside any number of the lines and he put a little, uh, little mark there shaped about like a lozenge or something. Put a little mark beside the lie and after a while he quit writing lie and just put his little special mark whenever he thought Jackson was lying. And I give you the judici judicious judgment based on years of examining Kernstown, Jackson, Garnet and other such things that Garnet is right. Jackson was not telling the truth. I would go further and suggest that he didn't know he wasn't telling the truth because I know enough about Jackson to believe he wouldn't have done that knowingly. But the passage of time, which has a wonderful effect on men's minds, and Jackson's strong emotions in the subject had led him to the point where he was saying things which are demonstrably not true. I give you all of this background, which has almost nothing to do with Cedar Mountain, because I would suggest to you that conceivably, there's no way to prove this, conceivably, subconsciously, Jackson lunged on across the river and went north because the court-martial was going badly. There's no question that the court-martial was going badly. The salient evidence in the fact is this. After the evidence started coming in, and I would mention to you that every one of the five colonels of the Stonewall Brigade, which was the first question on your quiz tonight, those five regiments, 2, 4, 5, 27, and 33, every one of their commanders sided with Garnet, not with Jackson. Some of them who were no longer holding their commissions went to great lengths to write letters to emphasize this. And the key evidence, though, about the way the court-martial was going was Alexander S. Pendleton, Sandy, Jackson's chief staff officer, in a letter home at just this time, suggested that things were going very badly for his general, who he was supporting loyally, and it looked like he was going to lose the court-martial. But whether this is the case or not, whether that is why Jackson abandoned this proceeding, which was never started again during the nine months of Jackson's life, that was the end of it. They had a third of a court-martial and it was all over. Whether it was for that reason or not, on the 8th, the Confederate Army was put into motion toward Culpeper Courthouse to try to go up and capture, gobble up, destroy federal forces which had pushed down into the vicinity of where the battle was finally fought, just southwest of Culpeper. Jackson was as secretive as ever. On the first day of the march, by a happy coincidence, his two ranking subordinates, his two highest subordinates were both asked by curious staff officers, where are we going? This is Ewell and A.P. Hill, division commanders. The response of Ewell was, I pledge you my word that I do not know whether we will march north, south, east, or west, or whether we will march at all. Jackson wasn't telling anyone anything. And A.P. Hill's response to his inquisitor, I suppose we will go to the top of the hill in front of us. But he really wasn't sure, and Hill was the second in command. The movement was actually signaled first by Jim Lewis, Jackson's servant, who very early in the morning started taking in the laundry. And when someone asked him why, he says, well, we're going to move. The general is a great man for praying at all times, but when I see him get up a great many times in the night to pray, then I know there's going to be something to pay, so I'm taking in the laundry. And off they went. Now, you've heard about Jackson's foot cavalry. You've heard about it again and again. But on the 8th day of August, Jackson's foot cavalry was hardly even foot snails. They got all tangled up 
As a matter of fact, Jackson started a whole bunch more court-martial proceedings over the tangle. He was always ready to go after someone, in this case mostly A.P. Hill, who had simply behaved rationally instead of in a rote fashion executing his orders which no longer made sense. But there's another story. They got all tangled up around Barnett's Ford and Somerville Ford trying to get across the Rapidan into Culpeper County, up toward where the battle finally took place, and they didn't get far. But let me tell you what the weather was like on the 8th of August. Now, I've lived in Virginia for 12 years, and I don't know that I'll ever get completely acclimated to August in Virginia. If I do, maybe it'll be time for them to carry me away, but this is the kind of day I recognize. August the 8th, at 7 in the morning, it was 80 degrees. Now, you can bear it in Virginia when it gets really hot and then gets down to a decent level at night, but when it stays hot all night and has been hot for a long time, the very leaves and twigs absorb it and are ready to ooze it out on you all day long. At 2 p.m. on the 8th, this day of difficult marching and not getting anywhere, at 2 p.m. it was 96 degrees. And then at 8 p.m. that night, it was still 86 degrees with the sun going down. They hadn't uh, invented daylight savings time by then. Perhaps I should remind you. One of Jackson's staff riding toward the battlefield had a brand new package from home that showed up. And he promptly wrote his wife a letter there on the 8th of August and said, don't send me any butter next time. <laughs> Not only had the butter gone bad, it had melted and poured over everything else, spoiling that. And he was most disappointed. The animals suffered and the men suffered enormously. The sand was ankle deep, gritty eyelids, gritty teeth. The accounts of what it was mo like marching in that mess are really pretty frightful. On the morning of the 9th of August, the day that this battle is going to be fought, Jackson didn't know there was going to be a battle. This is a meeting engagement in every sense of the word. In fact, he sent a communication from near Locust Dale. Locust Dale is just barely on your map in the lower uh, corner. It's not marked. It's one of those houses that's unmarked. That's a house name. He sent a communication from there to Robert Lee in Richmond in which he said, quote, I am not making much progress. And indeed, he wasn't. The Federals were also suffering very much. They were unhappy as all get out with John Pope. Marcina Patrick, who was a very decent fellow in any, any number of ways, he talked about the demoralization of the Union Army by the orders to pillage the South. He says, this order of Pope's gives a general license to pillage, rob, and plunder. It has completely demoralized my brigade. I am so utterly disgusted that I feel like resigning and letting the whole thing go. I am afraid of God's justice. There has never been such a state of things before. Here is Charles P. Horton from Massachusetts. Personally, General Polk was of quick temper, impatient of contradiction, rude in matter, and gifted with a vivid imagination, which pretty well covers the territory. And here's Gordon of the 2nd Massachusetts, one of the finest officers in the Army of the Potomac. He talked about a gathering in his tent where he heard men curse who had never cursed before. They were so mad at the way things were going under Pope. He said, this is quoting him, cuss words of such vigor were used as to leave some witnesses appalled. Ordinary words being totally inadequate to express one's feelings, swearing became an epidemic. These men suffered, just as the Confederates did, moving in the opposite direction, coming right straight toward them. They suffered tremendously from the heat and the dust. The chaplain of the second Massachusetts, Chaplain Quint, records that a youngster from Massachusetts had come to join the second. Private Carey was his name, and the chaplain, in writing about it after the war, apologized he couldn't give his first name because the youngster had arrived and had died of heat stroke. 
and they'd had 10 minutes during a halt in which to bury him and nobody had ever really gotten his first name exactly right and they buried him by the roadside. Here's a youngster from the 27th Indiana. He was 17 years old on August the 9th, 1862. I would mention that uh, one member of this round table has the birthday of August the 9th and I won't tell you who it is. I'll just let you guess along on that. He's probably smiling. But this youngster was 17 years old on this August the 9th, and he said this is the way his birthday went. The air was as hot as a bake oven. Our bodies seemed to be a furnace of fire. As we passed along, we saw many of our men lying on the ground, frothing at the mouth, rolling their eyeballs, and writhing in painful contortions. So when you go to studying the Battle of Cedar Mountain, and you look at those nice square little blocks on my map moving across a, a cool green forest countryside on that map, you're going to have to remember the human factor, which left a lot of people just exhausted, almost prostrated before they ever came into any fighting. Let me give you the weather again for this day now, the day of the Battle of Cedar Run, August the 9th, 1862. At 7 in the morning, it had been 80 at that point the day before, so you know the day before was building up the heat. On this morning, it was 84 at 7 in the morning, 98 at 2 p.m., and by 8 p.m., an hour or so after dark, it was still 90 degrees. There was no wind. There was that red Virginia dust all the way up to the ends. The first contact on the battlefield, and we're going to be talking, let me emphasize again, we're going to be talking about a meeting engagement. This map in front of you shows Confederates coming from the southwest, bumping into Federals, standing still for a while, and then Federals coming up and almost overwhelming them, although the Federals were tremendously outnumbered in this battle. But the first contact between the armies was cavalry contact. You'll see in the lower left corner of your map, or the mid-left corner, early first position. You'll see a stream running in front of early. As you might well imagine, the stream signifies something of a ravine, that being the way water runs. And in that ravine, in that sheltered area, Early spread out his men, and then he moved to his right front at about 45 degree angle over to Early's second position, which is smack in the middle of the map. He moved to his right oblique front, well formed up under cover, and drove away some Federal cavalry that was thrashing about there in the vicinity of the Cedars, one of the landmarks on this battlefield. I have a quote here somewhere when I find it about uh, Dufy and the cavalry. And I can't possibly skip that because he's the favorite officer of uh, one or more of you fellows here that I happen to know. Here we are. The first contact with cavalry came up against the first Rhode Island, which was uh, Dufy the Frenchman. And Dufy, rather like, uh, rather like Beverly Robertson, who I mentioned from the Confederate side, had never adapted very well to using this raw civilian material as soldiers. He was fond of the continental system where they got people who were used to obeying orders. And when Early started showing up and Confederate artillery started shooting at the Federal cavalry right there in what became the middle of the battlefield near the Cedars, Dufy gave the order to squadrons, left wheel, form close column. And this was a little more than the boys could manage, and his major, the second in command, president, whose name was Farrington, and he went along with a left wheel, 
instead of forming the close column, and Dufy completely lost his temper, something he was prone to do, I might mention, and with an oath, presumably in French, to reduce its impact, he ran up to Major Farrington and he shouted, what a sickness, what a business. I be like you, I go buy one rope, I go hang myself. <laughs> and everyone started over again. But Early had more than enough infantry to drive all the federal cavalry in Culpeper County back, and he did so. And the Federals fell back up toward the position where the blue troops are on the map. And things settled down to something of an artillery duel for a period of time. There are several key spots on the battlefield. The one that is the best marked today for when you go to Cedar Mountain, and I don't know how many of you were on this battlefield with me in 1978, getting to be a while ago. How many of you were at Cedar Mountain in 1978? About half of you almost, a little bit less than half. But a key point in visiting the battlefield is the gate. Now the gate is right below Branch, just above Jackson's headquarters. It's a place where a couple of roads come together. That place is well marked today. The UDC has a monument in the northwest corner of that little intersection. That old road, which runs from southwest to northeast and goes to Culpeper and was the main corridor to battle for both sides, that old road is mostly gone. It exists up to the gate coming from the southwest, and then it's gone thereafter. There's a modern road about uh, 300 yards to the right to the southeast. And that is confusing as all get out as many times as I've been there, as familiar as I've come with the battlefield, I still find myself subconsciously relating to that modern road and the distance that I am from it as I compute where I might be, and I have to catch myself by the forelock and turn myself around. The gate, though, is quite a landmark, and right next to that gate you see Confederate guns pointing northeast toward the Federal guns up where Geary and Prince are near the cornfield. And for quite some time, there was an artillery duel there. The Confederates were going to win any artillery duel on this day, though, and the reason is down at the lower right corner of your map. You see a mountain. All those circles indicate terrain lines. And Cedar Mountain, or Slaughter's Mountain, is an enormous big mountain. It's 851 feet, I think, above sea level at its crest. The surrounding countryside is 400 feet. So at a very short distance, Cedar Mountain, or Slaughter's Mountain, goes right straight up. The Confederates climbed up that hilltop from Mrs. Major's farm, there in the lower center part of the map, up across its northern slopes, up to where Ewell's infantry is shown, and just to Ewell's right are Confederate guns. Now, I imagine, if you will, you don't need a West Point education to figure out that guns on that very high ground, taking in flank the Federal guns up near Geary's Brigade and at that road intersection, they're going to get the better end of it, and they did indeed. But Jackson himself was down next to the gate. With him was Charles S. Winder, commanding the Stonewall Brigade. Some of the men in Winder's brigade were pretty disgusted with him and had been ever since he replaced Garnet after Kernstown that we talked about a moment ago. Pretty disgusted with him and his idea of discipline, bucking and gagging civilian soldiers of all things, patriots and citizens just like himself. They had said this was going to be his last battle. They were going to take care of him if the Yankees didn't in this battle, believe it or not. It's a matter of written record. They didn't get a chance. Quite early in this artillery duel, with Garnet commanding Jackson's division, Jackson commanding the whole army, both of them acting like lieutenants of artillery, which they'd been trained to be at the military academy, both of them directing the fire of the guns instead of looking at the larger picture. Winder was hit by a shell that didn't explode, but just tore him up terribly. 
He was carried to the rear and died down at the church just off your map at about 6 o'clock that evening. But Henry Howard of his staff has a vivid account of that whole business. This bottleneck at the gate where the Confederate guns were, and they're getting pounded by the Federal guns opposite them, while the Federal guns were in turn pounded from the hillside up next to Ewell, it became kind of a bottleneck. And everything kind of bogged down for the Confederates in there. But the key thing to note in all of this is that the Confederate infantry went on to the front and got into the woods. You see Garnet. Now, I don't want you to be confused. Awfully easy to get confused talking about, uh, talking about a battle that you might discuss for 12 hours in a period of 50 minutes or so. I don't want you to be confused particularly by Garnet. This has nothing to do with Richard B. Garnet. This was Thomas Stewart Garnet, the Colonel of the 48th Virginia, who's commanding the brigade here. Thomas Stewart Garnet was destined to be killed at Chancellorsville. About nine months later, he had just about as long to live as did Thomas Jackson, Stonewall Jackson. But Garnet is there in the wheat field, and look at the funny way his brigade is shaped. Shaped like an L, backwards. This is because the generals and everybody was thinking about the guns. And Garnet wasn't out there getting ready to receive an attack across the wheat field, which you can readily see from the blue arrows on your map is going to be forthcoming. I don't have any surprises for you. You know the Federals are going to attack across the wheat field. But Garnet didn't. Jackson didn't. Winder didn't. Winder and Jackson were thinking about artillery. And so they put Garnet out there with about a third of his brigade facing south, and the others at complete right angles. This is not your standard tactical disposition by any stretch of the imagination. And there was no one to his left. This map, which tries to cover two and a half hours of battle, shows Ronald's brigade. That's the old Stonewall brigade. Colonel Charles A. Ronald with the fourth commanding it. Shows Ronald up there to the left as some kind of support. But he only came in after things had gotten bad for Garnet. So when the infantry fight was about to begin, unbeknownst to the Confederates, when it was about to begin, Garnet was all that was there. And he was there in that backwards L thinking about protecting the guns that were a little bit back behind him fighting an artillery duel. And suddenly the Federals, who didn't like the way they were getting pounded with artillery from the hilltop, but couldn't do anything about it, they couldn't climb that hill and take those guns, they decided to go take the guns near the gate, where Winder had just been mortally wounded, where Stonewall Jackson was. And the Federals, who had about half as many men actually engaged on this battlefield as the Confederates, in round numbers 10,000 to 20,000 by the time it was over. The Federals, incautiously but very bravely and almost with ultimate success, came boiling across that wheat field and struck at and beyond the left of that funny-shaped backwards L of Garnets. You see the arrow looping in there on his left. Now, the Federals, Crawford's brigade, was composed of three regiments, the 5th Connecticut and the 46th Pennsylvania and the 28th New York. And they had with them, for some reason, four of the 10 companies of the 3rd Wisconsin. So those three and a half federal regiments came in against Garnet and all sorts of Confederates in the woods, but they surprised them. And they took advantage, without really knowing they were doing it in truth, of that very poor arrangement of the Confederate line, and they just shattered Garnet there in the edge of those woods. Imagine, if you will, the tip of that arrow, which is outflanking Garnet's left. Imagine that those troops rolling his line down toward the road, toward where the word Garnet is, and getting immediately behind the bottom part of the L, 
the bottom line right next to the road. They were entirely behind some of those people before they knew they were in trouble. The 21st Virginia was one of the ones facing south, facing toward the road itself, on the Confederate right, as it were. A captain in the 21st Virginia, in a letter home within the next little while, wrote, I tell you, they slaughtered our men. That was his word. They slaughtered our men. And a private in the same regiment, the 21st Virginia, said, we were literally butchered. Those two words from the survivors of the 21st, which took a terrible beating, tell you what it was like. The roar of musketry in that somewhat enclosed valley became terrific. Any number of the combatants comment about the noise. There were a lot of atrocity stories about the bayoneting of wounded prisoners. There are such after every battle on both sides, but there were more here than in any like engagement. And in one case, which is a matter of written record, the 1st Virginia Battalion, which was so badly handled here that it never fought again with the Army of Northern Virginia, became the Provo Guard for the whole army. The 1st Irish Battalion, so-called, one of the youngsters who was in the front line trying to resist the Federals coming on who was shooting, felt someone bayonet him from behind. And he turned around, and it was his own sergeant who had gone completely crazy in the close combat who had bayoneted him almost to death. As a matter of fact, he survived when one of the other fellows saw him and knocked out the sergeant. Don't know what happened to the sergeant, but the boy survived to tell his story years later. But the fighting literally got to be hand to hand. Now with Garnet gone, with Federals with a lot of momentum coming across the wheat through those woods, what is going to happen to Tolliver, the next unit to the right for the Confederates? Well, Tolliver, under almost any circumstances, would have been crushed and crumbled and driven away. However, what made it even worse for the Confederates was that his two left elements, quite by accident, were absolutely green, raw Alabama troops, 47th and 48th Alabama. They belonged here only for just a little while. Those of you who know about the Army of Northern Virginia probably know them as part of Law's Alabama Brigade when they were reorganized with their fellow statesmen. But here they were in their very first battle, and I don't know whether they thought it was the thing normally to expect or not, that a whole lot of Yankees would come screaming at you from up at the left where your friends were supposed to be. Whether they did or not, they turned and ran. As a member of the 10th Virginia, who was also in that Tolliver Brigade, a young fellow named Huffman, who says the Alabama men ran like turkeys. Raw men can't stand that kind of music. And an artillerist back behind them recorded, our men came rearward in a sort of wild, conglomerate, stampede mass. Stampede, I don't believe, was a legitimate adjective, but that uh, describes very well the way they came back. The Virginians, just to the right of the Alabamians, with Tolliver, were also swept away in this tide of federal victory. Sweeping onward still, just three and a half regiments. They've done all that could have been asked of them, and three or four times more, but they're still driving Tolliver back. Amongst the wounded was the man temporarily in command of the 10th Virginia, Captain David Kaufman Grayson of Company K. He had acceded to the command when the field officers were gone. Grayson was shot through the right lung and carried off the battlefield, and the surgeons looked at uh, Grayson and they told him that he was going to die. There wasn't much question about it. And he did, finally, in June of 1933, a great many years later. But he pulled him for uh, 70 
one years, as it turned out. The Federals, further to the Federal left, if you go back up and look at the others, we talked about Crawford, who has just about shot his bolt in driving away five times as many Confederates as he had. He's supported on his right by Gordon. Now, Gordon is the Colonel of the 2nd Massachusetts who's got the brigade here, and he brought in the rest of that stray Wisconsin outfit, the other six-tenths of it, and his own three regiments, which were the 2nd Massachusetts and the 10th Maine and the 27th Indiana. So they came in and lent their support across the same path, just a little bit behind Crawford. Meanwhile, Geary, Prince, Green, to the south of the road, toward the federal left, were pushing straight ahead against Early and the 12th Georgia and Thomas, who you see on the Confederate right. On the Confederate right, necessarily, if they were going to make anything of this battle, on the Confederate right, there was substantial people who stood strong. The 12th Georgia particularly stood strong. Captain Brown, who was in his early 60s, he had a son who was a lieutenant in the regiment. Captain Brown was commanding the 12th Georgia. They'd lost their field officers, and he was the senior captain. He stood there, and he was a stout old fellow. He was going to be killed just um, five weeks later at the Battle of Sharpsburg, old 60-odd-year-old William F. Brown. But when Early came up to him in the midst of the destruction of his force, Brown was standing firm and seemed to be in pretty good shape, and he said in one of those quotes that kind of rings down through the years, kind of like, don't tread on me, and so forth, he said to Early, who could only smile, he said, General, my ammunition is nearly out. Don't you think we had better charge them? Well, Early decided that was not the better part of valor, but the 12th Georgia stood firm, and Thomas was just coming up to stabilize the line, so the Confederates had something to build on to restore the line. And the restoration, the rebuilding of that line, came in large part from the example and the inspiration of Jackson himself. Jackson was more deeply involved personally in this battle, I believe, battle, I believe it's safe to say, than in any other of his battles during the whole war. There had been the usual accounts about his eccentricities just before or during the morning. They'd seen him riding around with his hand up. He was either praying or his hand hurt from the first Manassas wound, which way you believe. One of the Virginia cavalrymen found him on his knees with his eyes shut and his lips moving, so he was certainly praying at that point. He was watching on the far right when disaster broke on his left back up near the gate, and he rode back up there in a hurry. Just as he arrived in that uproar, things were completely falling apart for Tolliver and the 21st Virginia. Jackson was just back a little bit west of the disaster. A member of the 21st Virginia, that's the regiment that was hurt so badly in the bottom of the L, a member of the 21st Virginia suddenly found Federals not only to his left, but behind him and to his right, and he was out in front of a whole lot of Federals between him and the rest of the Confederates, and the first thing that he thought when he turned around and looked west down the road toward the gate, and he saw a big Yankee sergeant, as he said, and three privates step into the road, and he promptly shot the sergeant, but the, he didn't have rounds for the three privates. The first thing he thought of was Jackson, because he had seen Jackson back down there, and here were Federals back in that area, and he wondered how Jackson was. Well, Jackson was right smack in the middle of it. He had with him Jedediah Hotchkiss, amongst others. You know Hotchkiss's accounts, how important they are about Jackson. But Hotchkiss was never in a battle during the war, as far as I can find out, except here. They caught him unawares. Uh, he was right with Jackson when suddenly things went to hell in a handbasket, and as he rode home, bullets were coming at us from three sides. With him also were two very young fellows who were new to his entourage. One of them was Joseph Morrison. 
his wife's brother, Jackson's brother-in-law, and the other was young Willie Preston from Lexington, Virginia, who had just come out, a youngster of 18, and a great favorite with any number of the Lexington people. He was the nephew of Jackson's first wife, amongst other things, nephew of Eleanor Junkin. Well, young Willie is the step-nephew, if any of you are genealogists, I'll correct myself. Young Willie had come out. He was going to be killed two weeks later at Second Manassas to everyone's horror. But the two of them, the youngsters, Joe Morrison and Willie Preston, were right in the middle of this with the bullets coming from three sides. Jackson took his hat off and waved it. He normally was not the demonstrative sort. He not only took his hat off and waved it as he tried to rally his men. He said, men, rally to your general. Here's your general. He took his hat off so they could be sure who he was. He also pulled his sword, or tried to pull his sword, to wave it to rally the men, that being a standard device to lead the men with. But he hadn't had the sword out of the scabbard long enough, it turns out, according to one of the accounts from the men present. He couldn't get it out of the scabbard. So he hurriedly, in the ruckus, unbuckled the whole business from his belt, and he waved it scabbard and all in the excitement of the moment, rallying his men. If you go to Cedar Mountain today, you will read the UDC marker, which says this is the only battlefield on which Stonewall Jackson drew his sword. Well, they're close in saying that. He was transformed by the excitement. You read this again and again about Jackson, how his eyes shone in battle, whereas normally they were pale and kind of colorless. In the midst of this business, one of the Federals who had come slipping around there, one of Crawford's men, presumably, or else Gordon's, and had gotten very near the gate and the guns, which were hurrying to get out of harm's way. One of these men saw Jackson. He had just been captured by a Confederate staff officer. Listen to this account. A very handsome and hatless Yankee officer, not over 21 or 2, whose head was covered with clusters of golden curls and who had in his hand a broken sword, showing he had led the gallant charge which had broken our ranks, laid his hand on my knee as I sat on my horse, this is a Confederate officer, and said with great emotion, what officer is that, Captain? When I told him, fully appreciating the magnetism of the occasion, he seemed carried away. With a touch of nature that makes the whole world kin, he waved his broken sword around his head and shouted, Hurrah for General Jackson! Follow your general, boys. I presume he was not an Illinoisan to be so easily swayed. All right, Marshal? The Confederates had a whole lot of people readily available back down the road, and they were coming up into this maelstrom of crisis. Had the Confederate right broken, there would have been no way for them to rally short of back near the schoolhouse, the intersection of the road to Madison Courthouse. They could not have been destroyed, but they could have been beaten very soundly by this small Federal force. But the Confederate reserves came up just in time. You see Ronald with the Stonewall Brigade coming up well to the left of the road. Now, some of Ronald's troops got chewed up in this mess. And you will find North Carolinians and other such scurvy folk making fun of the Stonewall Brigade here and the Virginians. But I would point out to you in defense of the Virginians that there were three federal flags captured at the Battle of Cedar Mountain, and all three were captured by the Stonewall Brigade. Branch from North Carolina, who wrote some things about how he bailed out the famous Stonewall Brigade here, saw the right-hand part of that unit, uh, which was beaten back quite solidly. There were Carolinians galore coming up. You see Branch right behind Garnet. He was the first one into the breach, formed line, did a good job, all North Carolina. Archer with some Alabamians and Tennesseans to the left, and then Pender with yet more North Carolinians behind him. And very quickly, the line was rebuilt on the Confederate right, pushed quickly forward, 
stabilized things and then swept across the wheat field and beyond. As archers and penders brigades swept the field in front of them, having to quote a member of Pender's staff from uh, the archives of the North Carolina Department of Archives and History, this has never been published, S.A. Ash, says we were having everything our own way. And General Archer, much older than General Pender, as indeed he was, wrote up to him and said, Pender, do you curse in times like this? Why, no, replied the general, smiling. Well, I know it's wrong, said Archer, but I'd be damned if I can help it. I always curse when we're winning. You have not heard that before, I don't suppose. That's a unique tale. Archer, of course, was captured at Gettysburg and died after a hard time in federal prisons. As the Confederates pushed back on the left of the road, the Confederates on the right gained hard, and down there in the cornfield in front of the Cedars, Cedars was where the artillery was clustered on the Confederate right, down there in that cornfield in front of the Cedars, they captured a whole lot of the question about how far the reparations on one side and the other were going to go. So Prince was pretty worried. Of course, it all settled down and everyone accepted a grimmer war in the final analysis. On the left of the road, Gordon and Crawford were very badly battered up. The 10th Maine, particularly, of which there are good accounts, was just knocked to pieces, falling back over the ground it had won so very bravely. And then there was one of those cavalry charges, which is particularly in the early stages of the war, always followed on the part of the losing side. When a, an army was driven off the field, they sent the poor cavalry folks, the nearest handy regiment, forward in a desperate dash to slow down the pursuers. And it worked to some degree. You'll remember it happening at Gaines's Mill. Here at Cedar Mountain, the regiment was the 1st Pennsylvania Cavalry. They came right down that road. Most of the troops on the federal right of the road, the north of the road, the wheat field, uh, running up toward where Garnet had been and where Confederates were coming back. They got a bleak fire from both sides of the road. Sam Buck of the 13th Virginia, who's left a good account of the Battle of Cedar Mountain, records how he fired a ramrod which was in his gun when suddenly there were cavalry all around him and the next morning he fouled the Federal who had hit it and he was embarrassed at having done it. He didn't think it was a civilized sort of thing to shoot and he was glad the man was alive and survived and he took care of him. The sun was just setting as this went on. The chief of staff to General Ewell had come down the mountain, Campbell Brown, who, uh, on the strength of his mother, who had married Ewell, the widow Brown, pretty much ran the Second Corps later in the war. Well, Campbell Brown was there, and he talked about how all the Confederates came up to shoot the cavalry because it was so easy. He says they ran up laughing, yelling, shouting, as if they were the best-pleased set of chaps in the world. Well, the cavalry took 164 men into the charge, and they lost 92. So that is... Well, let me figure quickly for you, just about 60% of their strength, which is an enormous loss. During the evening, the battle moved up away from where troops are shown on this map. The Confederates followed up toward the unmarked building in the upper right corner, not as far as the Nally House at the far right corner, but you see the unmarked building. In that vicinity, there was a church, and the Confederates, under Willie Pegram, got pretty well battered by the federal artillery, as quite often happened when the federals had any real opportunity, uh, having the strength of the guns and the better ordnance. Nathaniel Banks had not been on this battlefield directly on the field much of the time. He'd been back up away from it, although his impulsive, forward-looking demeanor was very evident in the federal operations. I rather like uh, Nathaniel Banks. Most folks don't. A lot of folks make fun of him. But as uh, Lincoln said about another fellow later, I like him, at least he fights. 
he handled Jackson about as well as anyone did during the war. Uh, Banks, though, was back near the Nally House on a ridge there when he was very nearly killed by a shell and captured by cavalry both during the dark hours of the night of August the 9th. The Old Laurel Brigade from the Shenandoah Valley had gone off around the new Confederate right up in that area. And as they came roaring up through the darkness at what were obviously Federals only, they didn't know who, Banks was standing on the ground beside his horse. And his horse promptly kicked the general right square in the stomach and knocked him over. One of his staff was looking out for Banks, threw him over the horse and carried him away, or the Confederates would have got him. And they could have sent him off to Richmond to display in a storefront together with John Pope's uniform that they captured soon after. An interesting sidelight in this, in this business is that there was one Confederate cavalryman killed in the charge, the only man killed in that regiment during the whole day. You know what D.H. Hill and the others said, whoever saw a dead cavalryman? Well, their one fatal casualty in this battle was a man named Isaac Acker. And Acker was a coward. And he was so abject about it, so open about it, so physically unable to go into battle that nobody really thought badly of him in the regiment. They kind of sympathized with him because he was, he had lost all face, but he just could not help himself. But the captain of his company was damned and determined to get him into action, and so he was assigned to a lieutenant to lead him into the fight the next time, to keep his horse in front of him, to keep his sword handy, to keep the horse uh, in mind of which way he was supposed to go. And then they rode into that fight, and they shot, and they slashed, and they rode around, and they captured some Federals, and they came back out, and the only one killed in that whole thing was poor, frightened Isaac Acker, who'd just been holding onto his horse and hadn't wanted to go into the fight in the first place. Jackson rode among his men after the battle was over, and young Willie Preston, going to die in just a couple weeks and make a lot of people unhappy in Lexington, Virginia, Young Willie Preston rode up to Jackson, and as he wrote in one of his last letters home, writing his delight about this battle he'd been in, it had all been exciting, and none of his friends had been hurt, although there were a lot of people hurt. He wrote home to his stepmother, the Virginia poetess, Margaret Junkin Preston, she was, wrote home to his stepmother. He, when he found General Jackson talking to the men, I slapped him on the leg and slapped his horse so hard that he came near jumping from under the rider. But some allowance must be made for me, wrote the teenager, as it was the first time I had ever been under fire. In the aftermath of the battle, Lee quickly wired to Jackson, I congratulate you most heartily on the victory which has, God has granted you over our enemies at Cedar Run. The country owes you and your brave soldiers a deep debt of gratitude. Among the dead and the wounded were men famous then and men famous later. The shortest field officer in the Army of Northern Virginia, the very shortest, five foot four inch tall Abraham Spengler, was not short enough somehow. Someone found him as a target, wounded him. He came back within the year, though. Colonel F.W.M. Holliday of the 33rd Virginia Infantry of the Stonewall Brigade lost an arm and perhaps won a governorship in the process. It's pretty hard to get elected in Virginia without some sort of wound to show for any number of years after the war. Frederick W.M. Holliday, who lost his left arm at Cedar Mountain, was the governor of Virginia a couple of decades after the war. Lieutenant Colonel George W. Curtis of the 23rd Virginia was amongst those who were shot dead while Tolliver's brigade broke. He was commanding the 23rd. His brother was William B. Curtis, a full general, in a, a major general, I'm sorry, in the Union forces. And here the brother, Lieutenant Colonel George W. Curtis, who had been in the hospital in Charlottesville, Virginia, as late as the 7th of August 
checked himself out, came out to the battlefield, and was killed. One of the most famous wounds from the war, uh, from the whole war, because it's so well documented, was Snowden Andrews. Snowden Andrews uh, was from Baltimore, Maryland. He's a very gregarious fellow. Weighed quite a bit before the war. He was a lieutenant colonel of artillery here. He was riding his horse near the gate while the artillery duel was going on when a passing shell exploded and tore his stomach open. And he had the presence of mind as he was falling from the horse to put both arms across his stomach so he didn't fall apart, as he put it. He landed on the ground. Hunter McGuire, chief surgeon to Jackson, no less an officer than that, later became the president of the AMA, presumably knew what he was doing, came by, and he looked at his friend, Snowden Andrews, said he couldn't do anything for him. He's going to go take care of somebody who could recover. And he left him there. And a couple other surgeons did that. He, Andrews finally persuaded somebody to take care of him. And he said to this doctor, whose name was Amos, A-M-I-S-S, he said, if you damn doctors would do something for me, I'd get well. I once had a hound dog that ran a mile, shot worse than I am, and he recovered, and I'm as good as any damn dog that ever lived. And he did. And he put a metal plate in his stomach, and he was back at the Battle of Stevenson's Depot, just on the way to Gettysburg, the Second Battle of Winchester, if you will, June the 15th, 1863. He was back there in command of artillery and was wounded desperately again, this time with a round in the body, a small arms round, and that about did it for him. They sent him off to Europe where nobody could hurt him for the rest of the war and he bought ordnance for the Confederate States, became one of the most prominent architects in Baltimore after the war and died in, I think, 1920 or 1921. There were Confederate quarrels galore that came out of this battle. Uh, there always were. Who did what to whom? In fact, it was this battle which occasioned the next winter Jackson's wry comment to his, chief of his new chief of staff for, for the purpose of writing reports, Charles Faulkner. He said, I'm tired of this. He said, the next time we have a battle, I want you to get on a very high hill with a pencil and paper and write down everything that happens so we'll know later. So bear that in mind when you read the official reports. This was Clara Barton's first field service on the federal side. She came down here to care for wounded federal, and she did a great job. Clara, though, was something of a narcissist, as perhaps you know. Her diaries have, uh, have uh, come, out of, come out of the closet, so to speak, and her attitude toward herself has become apparent from them. But this, her first battlefield, she got some national attention from a letter that a surgeon from Philadelphia wrote home lauding her for what she did. He said, thank God for her. She saved so many men. She was a great help to us. And in the letter to his wife, which was printed in the newspapers in Philadelphia, he called Clara my homely angel of the battlefield. That's homely with an M, H-O-M-E-L-Y, my homely angel of the battlefield. Well, Clara, who kept clippings on herself very closely, cut two different versions of that out of the paper and with a pen, edited homely to holy, my holy angel of the battlefield. And unfortunately for the record, the original letter survives and there's no question about the three hump dim in the letter home uh, to Mrs. Surgeon. The Confederates were obliged, of course, to fall back because Pope had a lot more people than Jackson did in the neighborhood. And so after he held the battlefield one day and the dead were buried and the general officers got together in no man's land and argued a bit and compared notes a bit, the Confederates were obliged to fall back. And when they fell back on the evening of the 11th of August in 1862, when they were back below the river and Jackson was sitting in front of a campfire dozing like he did, he was chatting with a temporary member of his staff. Samuel Bassett French, who, bless his heart, is remembered to historians like me for the wonderful job he did all the rest of his life after the war in recording Virginia biographies on little slips of paper about so big there must be 50,000 of them 
don't know what we do without him. They've never been published, but they're available at the Virginia State Library. Well, Ed Bassett French was on the staff of Governor Letcher of Virginia. Letcher loaned him up to Jackson for a couple months to see what the war was like out in the field. And his recollections, fortunately, were published during the centennial. It's kind of an obscure little volume. I didn't see one at the Dan Weinberg's shop today. Centennial Tales, edited by a man named Oldacre. But they are S. Bassett French's recollections of his time with Jackson. It's a great book, all the things that he did. Well, as they sat around, S. Bassett French chatting with Stonewall Jackson as the representative of the Virginia governor on the night of August the 11th. They talked of the battle, and French records that he was giving a tribute to our noble dead, a rhapsody on my part over the gallantry of our troops. And while I was doing this, I found the great Stonewall had long since gone to the land of Nod. And while I was dropping a tear to memory dear, the hero was lost to time and sense in the gentle embrace of sleep. Well, this is where we picked Stonewall Jackson up, sound asleep, so I guess we'll leave him there at the end of the battle. Thank you very much, Bob. On behalf of the uh, Chicago Roundtable, I'd like to present you with this Huber mug, which is engraved, get some light here, presented to Robert Kitty Crick for gallant service, the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, October 14th, 1983. That's very lovely indeed. I thank you for that. I notice it's empty, though. We'll take care of that later. <laughs> Thank you. Now, we'd like to open the floor to questions and discussion. I'm sure there must be a number of things people have to say. Marvin? First. Robert, uh, I'm trying to recollect my own memory from the battle series. Did you play a prominent part toward the end of the battle? I know he had his forces up on the mountain on the Confederate right. What was his role? Question is, did you all play a prominent part in the battle? The artillery under his immediate command, as I've indicated, played an important part. His infantry on the mountain was not very much involved. Now, I should say that Early's brigade down in the bottom, which Ewell was not with, Ewell was on the mountain. He did not direct Early in this action. Early played a key role. But Ewell himself, with the two brigades on the hilltop, which is Hayes's Louisiana Brigade under Forno and Trimble's Georgia Brigade, those two brigades were not much engaged until the pendulum had swung, and they came down across by the Hudson House and the Hudson Mill and swung up around the federal left flank. But by then, the thing was very much in a state of flux, and all they did was add numbers to the pursuit. They really were not pivotal, no. The other question I have is with banks off the battlefield, who directed these attacks of the, the different brigades? Who organized it and pushed them forward and said move? Question is, with banks off the battlefield, who organized and coordinated the moves? One of my, one of my notions about the Civil War, which is something I don't hear much, don't hear often from others, is that luck played a far greater role in many of these things than you normally believe. We organized the brigades into lovely little rectangles for you, when in truth they were uh, 1,200 or so sweaty, exhausted men scattered all over the place thinking about food and girls and everything else. 
And the momentum and the shifts and so forth left these units very much disorganized at times. At the Battle of Sharpsburg, I think about Sedgwick's attack and the way the Confederates just kicked the hell out of him by surrounding him on three sides. And none of those three sides knew what the other one was doing, and it was almost pure luck. Now, that's not to say that the, the great officers didn't win for the right reasons. They made plans. They had great determination, Jackson particularly. Jackson was great because he was, by God, nobody was going to beat him. He was just so, he was, going to, he was determined. So he made his luck. But the notion that people knew in advance exactly what was going to happen is often wrong. And in this case, Crawford was sent forward by Banks's order, and there was a great controversy afterwards about whether the staff officers of Crawford and Banks had communicated with one another and their superiors adequately. But it was kind of an inarticulated, amorphous ooze up around behind the Confederate batteries which were causing some nuisance at the time. This was not a master plan, it was not a chess game. It wasn't even a football match, it was a street brawl with a lot of trees in the way so you couldn't even see where you were going. So, for overall coordination, there was very little, in truth. Who's responsible for the disposition of Garnett's brigade like that at right angles? Was that Jackson or somebody else? Or? Who is responsible for the disposition of Garnett's brigade? I don't know, and Garnett's brigade is the best covered of all the Confederate units in the, on this battlefield. For a variety of reasons, the 21st Virginia has more sources than any of the others. You heard me mention three different original accounts by members of the 21st through the evening. Uh, there was also the 42nd, 48th, and the 1st Battalion, and there's a lot of accounts of what happened to them. But who's, the responsibility for the disposition of the brigade has got to belong to Thomas S. Garnett. His immediate superior, the division commander, Winder, was back playing lieutenant of artillery, as I told you, and then was mortally wounded and was out of it. The division command passed to Tolliver, who got orders, Tolliver, who has the brigade to the right, Tolliver got orders from Jackson to look to your left, look to your left. And before he could look to his left, uh, his left had come down, the federal right had come down and destroyed his left. So once again, there wasn't a lot of control where the attack struck. It didn't come from Winder, it didn't come from Tolliver. All there was was Garnet. The 1st Virginia Infantry, it's interesting to note, had a clean shot at the Federals as they came over the hump there in the wheat field. Now the wheat field is very hard for you to make sense of today. When we were there in 78, we didn't even try to go up in there, as a matter of fact. But there was a hump, still is a hump, in the middle of that terrain there. And so about halfway across that field, the Federals came over and out and were very easy to shoot at. And the 1st Virginia leveled their guns and fired. And one of their officers who was looking on, not firing, he didn't have a shoulder arm, said not a single Federal fell, which doesn't say much for the marksmanship of the 1st Virginia. And that probably is one of the reasons that they fell apart. They didn't see themselves doing any good. Federal hands very soon. The Federals are already astride that road. 
What disposition did he make if things went badly? He apparently did nothing but sit there and watch where he could have, would have had to withdraw to Mitchell's station, it would appear, where he could have been defeated in detail. And did he have anything to say about that? Was that a question? <laughs> Could you repeat it? But the question is, what was Ewell's uh, fallback position in case of disaster? Ewell did not intend to go to Mitchell Station ever. The Confederate area of operations was southwest of him, not southeast, and Mitchell Station would not have done him any good at all. There is no road shown on this map because the guns were pulled up by hand over the countryside from Mrs. Major's road up in that area, they came up in a loop. That's the way they would have had to go back. The Confederates have been very badly handled here. Ewell would have had a hard time getting the guns off. There's no question of that. That's exactly right. Those guns were pulled up there by the 35th Battalion Virginia Cavalry, the Comanche so-called. And if you're familiar with that book by Franklin M. Myers, there's good evidence about what went on on the hilltop in that source. But he's going to fall back southwest if indeed he falls back anywhere not southeast to Mitchell Station. What happened to the mighty leader A.P. Hill while this was going on? What? Larry, division leaders. What happened to A.P. Hill during this battle? Hill is conspicuous by his absence here. One of his brigades, that of Maxie Gregg from South Carolina, was left back with the trains. Hill had just been in a tremendous run-in with Jackson, which cannot have helped his psyche any. His, uh, his drive for, for independence and inertia, and I suppose some combination of those circumstances leaves him with a low profile. In truth, though, his first unit up was Thomas, who wound up going to the right, which needed help apparently. Now there wasn't a problem yet, but Thomas went there. The second one up is Branch, then Archer and Pender in short order. And the thing was over so fast. Archer and Pender were put in position by Jackson. Jackson made a short speech himself to Branch's men and later applauded them by bowed, tipping his hat to them after the battle was over. This went so fast. From the moment that Branch went into action, until Archer and Pender had swept through the wheat field cannot been a more, have been more than 10 or 15 minutes. So it may well be that A.P. Hill didn't have a chance. And if he did have a chance and didn't take it, we can probably see it in him getting a, the tongue lashing of his life and all sorts of threats, which later turned into official charges the day before from his revered leader, T.J. Jackson. Could you review what the Federals had hoped to accomplish by pushing Banks out this far, and what Jackson was hoping to accomplish by crossing the Rapidan. What did the Federals hope to accomplish by pushing Banks out so far, and what did the Confederates hope to accomplish by crossing the Rapidan? The answer for the Federals is hard for me to give. If indeed they had a firm notion here, it it escapes me. I say that not because I've examined it closely, but because I have not examined it closely in truth. There was a flurry, a hurricane of charges and countercharges about whether Banks had exceeded his orders from Pope. Pope said in writing by one of Lee's nephews, one of Lee's cousin's sons, I guess it was, Marshall from Baltimore, who was related to Charles Marshall of Lee's staff. He was on Pope's staff to Lee's disgust. 
one thing to be a federal, it was another thing to be on Pope's staff. He was the man who got caught in the middle. He brought the orders down to Banks. And Banks says, I want those in writing. And he knew what Pope was like by now. He expected Pope was going to look for a scapegoat, as indeed he did. And so Marshall wrote down the orders, and those were pitched into Jackson. Well, Pope later changed his mind. So I didn't want you to do that. This was just a reconnaissance in force. Uh, Siegel's corps was not yet up. It was sitting at the other end of the road. You remember the famous story, probably it was at the other end of the road from Sperryville to Culpeper. And there is only one road from Sperryville to Culpeper. Only one conceivable way through those mountains. I drive it every few weeks up to where my son's going to school. He sat at the end of that one single road in Sperryville and sent a messenger back by horse to say, which road shall I use? And the messenger came back and said, the only road. So the absence of, uh, of Siegel was a problem. But the Federals were, what was John Pope's plan throughout the campaign? We haven't time to discuss that. Jackson's hope was, if indeed he wasn't just dodging the court-martial that was going so poorly, Jackson's hope was to find what he did find. And that is, Federals out on the end of a limb, away from adequate reinforcement, who he could gobble up for the time being and do some harm to, number one. Number two, at the very least, slow them down until Lee could come join him. Because the big strategic picture throughout the state of Virginia in the first week of August is that Lee is just barely finding out from one John Singleton Mosby, a returned prisoner of war yet to become famous, at that time in the 1st Virginia Cavalry still, I think, uh, from John S. Mosby, he was just finding out for sure that the Federals were taking vessels out through Fortress Monroe and back up toward, uh, toward the ports at Fredericksburg and Alexandria. So Lee was still down around Richmond, and Jackson's strategic assignment, aside to the tactical things we've talked about this evening, was to keep the Federals from pushing too far down. A good way to do that is give them a bloody nose when they get close, give Lee time to rearrange the whole military picture in Virginia based on the new evidence that the Yankees are leaving Harrison's Landing and going back whence they came. So Jackson succeeded in a strategic sense much more than he did in a tactical sense at Cedar Mountain. There being no more further questions, thank you again, Bob. I do have a sad announcement to make. Um, Dr. Dr. Clausius and his wife Ellen lost their son on September 24th. He passed away uh, in the hospital after a short illness. Uh, don't forget, next month's meeting will be across the hall in the Camelot room. If you have your Fredericksburg questionnaires ready, bring them up here now. Meeting's adjourned.